Good morning, welcome again. We're at Psalm 133. If you're using one of the Blue Church Bibles, it's I think about page 518, 519, somewhere in there. Psalm 133. Please join me in praying again and asking for God to bless the reading and the preaching of his word. Father, we do come again to your word with anticipation, with hunger, and with humility. We ask, Lord, that as we hear your word, that you would simultaneously mature us and grow us, while also making us more childlike. Teach us to receive your word with faith and with simplicity. We pray in Jesus' good name. Amen. Psalm 133, a song of ascents of David. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It's like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Unity. Unity is what brings us together today. Unity, that blessed arrangement, that dream within a dream, and love, true love will follow you forever. So treasure your love. That's a slightly, of course, modified version of the famous wedding homily in The Princess Bride. But with its shallow platitudes, it is not all that different than how many preachers and many Christians approach a simple psalm like this one. We might be tempted to view Christian unity and Christian love in terms of a feel-good pep talk. Well, everybody, isn't unity great? Let's go out there and get after it. It's time for lunch. But thankfully, this psalm is a lot richer and a lot deeper than that. Uh, The imagery here is probably strange to many of us, but I'll show you in a little bit that they support the psalm's much larger and deeper point, that unity is a gift from God. That it's something from God and therefore fundamentally about God. That it's a gift that we must welcome as His gift if we are going to pursue it and preserve it as the divine blessing that He intends for it to be. But before we get there, we have to understand a couple of things, especially because we are so tempted to treat what the Bible says about unity so superficially. Who's against unity? Who's against love? That's like being against puppies. And so we might think, yeah, sure, I get this. I'm all about this. I'm doing it. It's fine. But we have to slow down. The first word of the psalm is the word behold, which means look. Pay attention to this. This is really important. 
The unity that is so closely tied to God's blessing is not something that we can just blow past like we've heard it all before or as though it's something easy for us to do. You have to think carefully about it. Uh, I'm going to take a little bit of an off-ramp from the highway onto the frontage road for a little while before coming back on to the highway of Psalm 133 to help us understand and slow down what's going on here. Uh, First of all, if we're going to understand the psalm correctly and what it's saying, we have to understand that not all unity is good. Not every kind of unity is a good kind of unity. The psalm itself starts out by drawing our attention to the goodness and the loveliness, not just of brothers, and not just of brothers who happen to dwell together in the same house, but it says that brothers who are dwelling together in unity is what's lovely and good. You can, of course, dwell together. You can have a kind of unity, but not really be dwelling together. There are countless marriages and families and churches where people are functionally united, but not really united. Where people are in the same physical or procedural space, but are actually very far away from each other. Not truly loving each other in the way that the Bible intends for us when it places before us this beautiful feast of love and unity. Uh, it, of course, happens in all kinds of ways. You can preserve a certain kind of unity by avoiding conflict, by hiding problems, or by being a doormat to the demands of other people. That will get you a kind of unity. A lot of people do all this and they genuinely believe that they are acting in love or even in grace. But we know that they are really only creating a much greater problem. And in the end, they are creating much more serious division. Now, you see this in Paul's first letter to the Corinthian Christians. Uh, If you're ever feeling sad and depressed about our own church, I don't. But if you ever are, read the first Corinthians letter and you'll realize that that was a really messed up church. Uh, One of the things that's so messed up about that church is uh, they refused to excommunicate a guy in their church who was sleeping with his mother-in-law. And Paul writes them about this and he says, what are you doing? What are you thinking? You've got to get rid of this guy. Uh, The reason they're refusing to do it is because they think they are so loving and they think they're so open-minded. They're very proud of how gracious they're being towards this guy in their church. But Paul says to them that that kind of unity is actually destructive and that they have to remove the man from their church because he's making such a mockery of what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to be a Christian. So you can have a a superficial kind of unity that's actually built on this decaying foundation of lies and evil. And so in the end, it actually ruins everybody involved. Uh, In another letter to the same church, Paul warns them about the ways that they've welcomed false teachers into the church who are importing all kinds of worldly values and destructive priorities into their church. And so Paul says to them in that letter, he says, don't be unequally yoked. That means don't uh, share a, a yoke like oxen do. Don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? 
You see, the Corinthian Christians had united around deception and sensuality. But that's not the kind of unity that God blesses here in Psalm 133. So to say that not all unity is good is just another way of saying that not all division is bad. God demands that his people be distinct and separate from many things, from many ideas, from many people. Jesus, the Prince of Peace himself, is very divisive. He says in Matthew chapter 10 that he did not come to bring peace, but rather he came to bring a sword. He says that in many cases he's going to divide the biological family against itself. He says that putting your trust in him, following after him, is sometimes going to mean, he says, a person's enemies are going to be those of his own household. Jesus often warns his disciples that the world is going to hate them because the world hates him. He and the apostles and many, many Christians down through the ages and around the world today have been despised and persecuted as enemies to their societies. We've often said in our series on the Psalms of Ascents that being a pilgrim is hard. These psalms are regularly talking about the opposition and suffering that God's people are going to face in a world that believes that their true home is this fallen creation. And so those who know that their true home is the coming new creation are going to be lied about and mocked, sometimes even killed. We've seen a few different points where these psalms have wrestled with that. So in that sense, division, division is not just not bad, it's expected. It's even necessary. Uh, have you ever read something in the Bible? And maybe after many years of being around the Bible and you think, was this really here before? I've never noticed this verse before. Uh, a few years ago, I came across one of these verses that I, I felt like I'd never seen before, even though I know I'd seen it. Paul says to the Corinthians, talking about division, in his first letter to them, he says, while there's many kinds of division that are terrible, some kinds of division are necessary. He says this, he says, there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. In some sense, uh, some kinds of division are really important. So we're called to far more than merely to coexist with each other, than merely to tolerate each other, than merely to be nice or even quote-unquote loving. The New Testament regularly brings together love and truth. Grace and clarity. Kindness and consequences. Even within the church, many people today think that you're being unkind and divisive if you lovingly speak the truth. But Paul says in his letter to a different church, to the Ephesians, that Christians are supposed to speak the truth in love. That we're supposed to speak the truth in love to one another, as we also do, of course, to the world just like Jesus did and does. The word of God is loving, both in God's message of anger against those who are rebelling against him and also in his offer of forgiveness to anybody who repents of it. Both of those messages are loving. And so like we mentioned earlier with the church in Corinth, sometimes a church itself must remove an unrepentant person away from itself. 
The whole process of church discipline up to and including excommunication is loving. Even though, yes, of course, it's in a sense necessarily divisive. So not all unity is good and not all division is bad, but a lot of division is really bad. If we're going to pursue and preserve the kind of unity amidst God's people that this psalm is talking about and celebrating, we have to be on guard against all kinds of things that undermine it. Uh, It's a new year. Many of us start thinking at this time of year about what we want to do differently. Uh, If that's your thing or if that's at all the way you're thinking right now, then maybe listen to the few things I'm about to tell you and and listen for what God might be telling you. Maybe one of these things that God wants me to change in my own life, in my own family in my own marriage, in my own work. Uh, Just try to listen where God might be calling you to live in a more united, less divided way. Uh, To get ready for this sermon, I read a bunch of passages in the New Testament talking about Christian love and Christian unity. And I noticed a few things that they all had in common. Uh, They all are warning against various forms of being fixated on yourself. And that pops up in a different way. The first way, the most common way, one of the most common ways, is self-righteousness. Self-righteousness, looking down on other people because you are so focused on your own obedience and performance because you believe that God loves you and accepts you because you are particularly pious or diligent or hardcore. Uh, Paul warns some in the church in Rome about sneering at the moral inferiority of some people while neglecting the fact that they themselves have broken God's law at many points. And so Paul says, don't you realize that as you condemn other people, you're also condemning yourself because God holds you to the same standards? Uh, Paul warns others in the Corinthian church about looking down on other Christians because they think that they have this superior spiritual experience that they have this superior spiritual knowledge because they have certain links with certain christian leaders those are various forms of self-righteousness that can cause us to divide ourselves from other people but division also comes from more subtle and less overtly spiritual forms of being self-absorbed we can be prone to pride We can entertain inflated views of ourselves and our gifts, our desires and our abilities. We can think that we're pretty dialed in to being able to read other people's minds and read their motives and know what's really going on in their mind uh, instead of being humble about ourselves, humble towards other people, humble about our ability to know what's going on inside people's hearts and minds. Uh, In one of his long reflections on Christian unity and love uh, in the letter to the Romans, Paul says this, He says, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. He says, never be wise in your own sight. Closely related to humility are patience and gentleness. Uh, These other ideas that always pop up in these passages about love and unity. Paul starts another passage on unity by saying that we must bear with one another in love. Love is not easy. You have to bear with people. You have to put up with them in a sense. Paul says we have to do it with all humility and gentleness, with patience. Uh, But these passages, as we heard earlier in the service when Steve was reading, I was surprised by this. The passages about unity also go out of their way to warn against the self-absorbed fixation on pleasure. On pleasure. They warn against lust 
and greed and gluttony, consumerism. I think that's because if you're focused on what makes you feel good, then of course you cannot and will not be concerned about what's good for other people. And therefore you will inevitably become divided from them and hostile towards them. But perhaps most subtly of all, we can automatically slide into division and disunity through general apathy and indifference. Through just not caring. The unity that comes through focusing on others instead of yourself has to be cultivated. It has to be pursued. Paul says in his unity passage in Romans that Christians should seek to outdo one another in showing honor. That rather than being slothful in zeal, lazy in zeal, he says you should be fervent in spirit. It takes a lot of effort. He says that we have to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Uh, doing that itself uh, is the opposite of apathy. It requires you to think about other people and what kinds of things they're going through and how they might be feeling instead of uh, what you're feeling and what you want and what you demand from other people. So we have to work hard at the kind of compassion and genuine concern that fosters the kind of unity we're talking about. Because we find it so easy and so natural to focus on our own concerns and our own friends and our own families. There are a thousand and one excuses for disengaging from other people. Apathy is so easy. It feels so natural. It's so unnoticeable. But it puts us outside of the kind of unity that this psalm is praising. The kind of unity where God richly pours out his blessing on his people. And so now that brings us back to Psalm 133. Off the frontage road back onto the highway. All these images about pouring and falling down. Three times here we are told that something falls down, which of course should cause us to look up to the source. Where are these things falling from? And so especially in light of how the psalm ends, it ends with God commanding his blessing on a united people. It of course is meant to lead us to look to God. Because unity is first and foremost about him, not about us. It's something that God does, not something that we do, first and foremost. But I'm getting a bit ahead of myself because we've got to get into these weird metaphors. Uh, the first metaphor for good and lovely unity is that it's like precious oil on the head running down on the beard. Uh, that might sound a little weird. But we have to understand that in the biblical world, olive oil is something that you apply to the human body for all kinds of purposes. You did it for cleaning. It was their shampoo and soap. You did it for healing. It was a form of medicine. You did it for refreshment. It was like perfume. And so with all of these uses, applying oil is also often in the Bible an act of hospitality, an act of welcome. I guess sort of kind of like today, if you set out fresh towels or treats or drinks for your guests when they arrive at your house. Uh, this is the significance in the famous Psalm 23 of David saying that the Lord anoints his head with oil as the Lord prepares a table before him in the presence of his enemies and that he's going to dwell in the house of the Lord forever and ever. The anointing on his head is an act of welcome and hospitality from a generous host. David's saying that unity among God's people is like this oil lavishly poured out. Not just a couple sprinkles here and there, 
uh, but it's dumped out on your head so that it comes all the way down onto your metaphorical beard. But then oil in the biblical world is about more than health and hospitality. The psalm shifts to a second and related metaphor because now unity is something priestly. David says that the blessing of unity between God's people is like the oil that ran down on Aaron's beard all the way down onto the collar of these special priestly robes that Aaron wore when he was acting in his role as the very first high priest of Israel. He was there to represent Israel to God as he offered sacrifices and gifts on their behalf in worship. And so you can see here that unity is set in the context of drawing near to God like the priests do, enjoying the goodness of his presence. The New Testament says that all Christians now are God's priests. We all draw near to him. And as we're united to each other, we enjoy God's presence in a special way. And so this focus on God continues in the third and the final metaphor about something that falls down. You have two uh, kinds of oil falling down. And now we move into weather systems. David says that God's people dwelling together is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. Uh, If you're not quite up to speed on biblical geography, I had to look this up this week again. Mount Hermon is the big, huge mountain in the very tippity north of the land of Israel. Uh, That was a very green and lush area. Mount Hermon often has snow on it most of the year. Uh, Mount Zion is way in the south. So Mount Hermon's way up here. Mount Zion is way down here where it's a lot drier and warmer. This is the hill in Jerusalem where David uh, built his palace and where his son Solomon would build the temple. So when we talk about the dew of Hermon falling onto Mount Zion, it's an oxymoron because the dew or the drizzle that's always falling up on Hermon uh, is something uh, that doesn't fall down on Zion. Uh, It's not just here to evoke this image of unity being life-giving and refreshing and rejuvenating, although that's part of it. But I think most of all, the image is that this is a miracle because the dew of Hermon normally cannot and does not fall on Zion. It's actually impossible. But the very next line talks about how the Lord commands his blessing on the unity of his people. And so the whole point here is that this unity is in a deep sense miraculous. That it's from God himself. It's not something that we manufacture or bring together on our own. God commands his blessing of eternal life, life forevermore, on the unity that he himself gives. Wherever we don't have unity, we need to pursue it. And wherever we do have it, we need to preserve it. But we do all of that, not by our own strength or willpower or good intentions, but by turning to the Lord, by relying on Him with open hands that welcome it and ask for it and receive it. The goodness and the loveliness and the blessing and the life that this psalm is talking about, all this stuff that comes from being united, it comes from God. It's his gift. Our world, of course, many churches are profoundly and depressingly divided. It can be incredibly overwhelming and even discouraging to even think about how good it is to be united because you see all around us the ways that it's so desperately lacking, the ways that we just cannot figure it out after thousands and thousands and thousands of years. 
People cannot figure out how to be united with each other. But the big emphasis of this psalm is that unity is something that's about God and from God. And this is where and how the New Testament speaks about unity. Now that Christ has come in the power of the Spirit as the beloved Son of the Father. In His life and in His words and in His ministry, Jesus has demonstrated the perfect unity of the three-personed God. And when Jesus gives his own life to us, the New Testament over and over again says that he is giving you unity. He is nourishing you in it. True unity is first and foremost a gift before it is a goal. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2, speaking about how God has already united Jew and Gentile across this uncrossable chasm that had divided them. He says to them, Jesus himself is our peace. He has made us both one. He has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He says that in Jesus, all Christians are being built together as a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. And then later, Paul says, there is one body and one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And so you hear Paul in all these different ways talking about how unity is the new reality for the Christian. It's something you already are and have. And so he turns immediately around in this letter to the Ephesians. And he says, now you must strive to maintain this gift of the unity of the Spirit. He says, you have to relate to each other in a manner that's worthy of the calling with which you've been called. You have been united. You have been called to unity in the very life of God himself. And so Paul turns and says, now live like that's true because it is true. We forgive because Christ has forgiven. We serve because Christ has served. We're humble because Christ has humbled himself. We love because Christ has loved. You see the same exact thing put in a very different way by the Apostle John. Uh, his first letter, written when he's a very old man, uh, talks over and over and over again about how important it is that Christians love one another. It also starts to sound kind of trite and banal, like, okay, I get the point, John. We need to be loving. Uh, but he's always talking about how the reason you should love each other is because for the Christian, the love of God is fundamental reality. The love of God is the soil in which you are now living and growing. The soil from which you now draw all your nutrients that you need for eternity. Love is something that you have from the God of love before it's something that you do for other people. Listen to 1 John chapter 4. John says, Beloved, it's interesting, isn't it? The way he addresses Christians as people who are already loved. Beloved. Let us love one another. For love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. He goes on. He says, we've come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. 
So you see again what he's saying? Love, unity, they are from God and in God. The fundamental reality of the universe is love. And so when you love the way that God calls us to love, you are living in line with him and with the nature of reality. These blessings are from God and in God. They fall down from him like oil on the head from the generous host, like the priestly oil that uniquely consecrates a people to draw near to God, like miraculously refreshing rainfall on a parched land. And it's as we welcome these things as gifts, as the new reality from God and in God, most especially in and through Christ, it's then that we are actually able to pursue and to enjoy the great blessing of this loving unity within our families, within our church, within our community. It is impossible for us to be united in and of ourselves. We are painfully reminded of that every day and everywhere. Brothers and sisters constantly bickering and fighting. Husbands and wives suspicious of each other, suspecting each other's motives all the time. Races and classes and bosses and employees. We can't do it. We have to turn to the blessed and the living and the triune God for the blessing and the life that only He can give. Only He can unite the human family. He's already doing it in the church. This is what makes the church such a wonderful thing, as lame as many people think it is. The church is God's new family where he's uniting humanity once again. Even as we continue to struggle with all kinds of division from our sins and from our weaknesses. But we know that in the age to come, when we arrive home as pilgrims, in the age to come, God will once and for all perfect our unity. And so he will lavishly pour out his blessing of life forevermore. How good and pleasant it will be, but how good and pleasant it already is. Let's pray. Father, you have so graciously drawn us into your life and into your love from all of eternity past and into all of eternity future. You have been in the love of the Son and the love of the Spirit. And they in your love, forever enjoying one another, forever delighting in each other, with perfect happiness and contentment. And now you've drawn us into your love. Father, how quickly we forget that your love is our new reality. Teach us to live out this wonderful truth that we are your beloved so that we might love one another, so that we might be united with each other amidst so many reasons to be divided against each other, so many reasons to treat each other so poorly. Help us, Father. Move us down the road towards the perfect unity that you will one day bring about on earth here in your people, the church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.